Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the one born to us, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text that we have before us is from Luke chapter 2. We hear verses 34 and 35. Please rise as we hear these words in Jesus' name. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, listen carefully. This child is appointed for the falling and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. We pray. O Lord Jesus, be with us and help us as we consider how you came in lowliness. Help us to not fall to the temptation to scoff and reject your coming, but to rejoice in the fact that you have opened our eyes to see your salvation that you share with us. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Simeon, the old man in the temple who joyfully greeted his Savior Jesus along with Joseph and Mary, he spoke some interesting words to Mary in our text. He said, this child is appointed for the the falling and the rising of many in Israel. Well, how is that? What does that mean? How does Jesus bring about the falling of people? And how does he bring about the rising of people? And then what about us? How can we make sure that we're not among those who are falling, but instead are those who are rising? That's what we want to consider here today. And first of all, let's consider what it means that Jesus becomes the fall of many in Israel. Now, many people think that they were victims of circumstance, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, Here, Mary and Joseph, they had to travel this strenuous journey several days to get to Bethlehem. They were trying to comply with some seemingly arbitrary, greed-inspired government mandate. And all the while, Mary was, was about to give birth, about to have a baby. And then when they arrive in their ancestral hometown of Bethlehem, there's no room for them to stay. There's no proper place for Mary to have this baby. The best that can be done is with the animals. Definitely not a comfortable place to give birth. Not a clean place. It was lacking all the normal things that you'd want and expect when when having a baby. There wasn't even a proper place to lay the child down to sleep. And so they had to use a manger, a feed bucket. It must have been a struggle for them. How hard, how challenging under these circumstances. Now, as people throughout the ages and people today hear this story of the first Christmas, it doesn't strike them at first as being offensive. The account as we see it and as we think about it, and as we see it portrayed sometimes in nativity scenes, it comes across, doesn't it, as, as rather peaceful and serene. It might even look kind of warm and cute. If there's any negative feelings associated with the nativity, it's because people are, are sympathizing with, with Mary and Joseph and they feel sorry for Jesus that he had to face these hardships. But dear friends, is that the reason why God gave us this account at Christmas time? So that we might think, oh, poor Jesus, 
He had to be subjected to all these terrible circumstances, even from birth. Actually, the Christmas account is offensive, isn't it? And isn't it, and it isn't, isn't it even meant to be offensive? This is an account that's given to us not to inspire warm fuzzies. Instead, it's meant to be jarring. It's meant to be shocking to us that God would come to us in such a way as this. The account of Christmas and all of the details surrounding Christ's coming into the world, it is offensive to our human way of thinking, to the way that the world works and to the worldly way of thinking. One is tempted to think and, and say, God Our God, he's going to humiliate and embarrass himself like this? Is this really the the kind of God that that I want to have? How weak, how pathetic. This, This really just goes against common sense. It's a temptation that so many people have. They scoff at this true message of God's coming into our world. In fact, throughout his life, this was the sentiment that Jesus himself faced as people outright rejected him. For instance, when Jesus was in his home area, proclaiming himself to be the coming Messiah, he was the one who was to come, the people there said, according to Mark chapter 6, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and is the brother of of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and aren't his sisters even here with us? And we're told that they took offense at him. People still do that today. They look at Jesus as if he was nothing more than an ordinary human being. They consider the, the humble nature of Jesus. They consider the, the lowly package that they see. And they consider him only by his outward earthly appearance, and they decide that this can't possibly be God who has come to earth. And so sadly, they refuse to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by refusing to confess that, they then lose out on the salvation that can come only through him. They reject him because it doesn't make sense to their minds. It offends their understanding and their way of thinking. Christmas is also uh, offensive to the high opinions that we often have of ourselves and to the high opinions that we have of our own abilities. And this is because his humility, it demands our own humility. Considering how low he had to descend in order to help us, it shows how low we really are in our own sins. But then the self-righteous nature in our own hearts is offended, isn't it? Sure, I know I'm not great, but did God really have to go to these lengths for me? That's kind of insulting to my, my own works, to how good I am, to my own efforts. I'm a good person, better than others. In order to have Christ's salvation, we must first of all see and appreciate the depths of our own sinfulness. But then when Jesus points this out, when Jesus calls sin, sin, 
people are offended by it. They're angered by it. And we see this example throughout the scriptures, perhaps most notably with the Pharisees. Jesus calls the Pharisees out again and again. Woe to you, he says, for trusting in yourselves, for rejecting what should be so obvious from God's clear word. And even though Jesus would approach them and warn them again and again and point them back into God's word, how did they respond? By wanting to get rid of him all the more. They were plotting to murder Jesus. Or when Jesus preaches the law in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, he preaches the harsh law to the people there. And what do they do in response to it? They want to take him and throw him headlong over a cliff. Self-righteousness remains a temptation for us too. I'm not that bad, we might try and think. But then when we hear that we are that bad, well, then we're tempted to ignore the diagnosis. And then we try to push Jesus aside as small and unnecessary. Martin Luther has this great quote. He says, If you see yourself as a little sinner, you will inevitably see Jesus as a little Savior. The coming of God into our world in the person of Jesus also challenges our hearts. It demands a change of heart. And our hearts find that to be offensive at times. If we are going to put our faith and our trust in Jesus, that requires a change of heart. It requires full commitment of the heart. We can't give half our hearts to God and the other half to idols. God says that he's going to vomit out of his mouth those who are lukewarm. God is not interested in playing the hokey pokey with one foot in and one foot out. This challenges people because we get comfortable with what we have here in this world. And we get offended by the thought that something or someone might take these things that we like away from us. Whatever it is. Maybe it's money or status and power or or earthly, worldly pleasures. Maybe it's those pet sins and those vices that we have grown to love. If there's a new king that seeks to rule in our hearts, well then that means all these other things need to yield But our sinful nature doesn't want to yield these things. It wants to hold on to these things. It becomes protective of all of these things that it's grown to love. Think of King Herod. King Herod didn't want anything to come even close to taking away what he had gotten for himself here in this world. So much so that he went to the evil lengths of murdering all the the infant and toddler boys of Bethlehem just to preserve what he had. Dear friends, in reality, Christmas is offensive. Christ's coming is offensive to the world and to our worldly way of thinking. And Jesus himself admits as much. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus is offensive to the world's way of thinking, to our natural fleshly way of thinking. 
It is as St. Paul explains, when speaking about the humiliation, when speaking about the lowliness that Jesus was subjected to, and especially the cross of Christ. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, it is offensive to the Jews, it's a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness, folly to the Greeks and to the Gentiles. And so Jesus proves to be the fall of many because they choose to reject him for these and many other reasons. Dear friends, please consider your own heart. Consider your own attitude toward Jesus. Do you take offense at him and his humility? Do you take offense at his preaching of the law and how he addresses your sins? Do you take offense at how, how, his, how he desires to come and, and, and possess your heart and how that might push other things out of your heart? If you've gone astray, turn back to Jesus. Change your attitude so that you do not fall. Instead, see how he desires to be for your rising. And how does that happen? How is it that Jesus brings about the, the rising of many? Well, we see a beautiful example of that in the person who speaks the words of our text. The old man in the temple, Simeon. In Luke chapter 2, we hear that Simeon was constantly at the temple. Because he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting with, with eager anticipation to see the Messiah. And God had told him that he would have that spe special privilege. Before he died, he would get to see the coming Messiah with his own eyes. And he wasn't about to let any human reasoning or any worldly way of thinking get in the way. He wasn't going to scoff at any humble circumstances that God might use in his plan. Simeon wasn't going to let any sort of self-righteousness rise up in his heart and block that Messiah. He wasn't going to let any other worldly concern distract him. He was committed to what God had revealed to him about his plan of love and salvation. During the past few weeks of Advent, we, we have been talking about preparing our hearts for the coming Savior. Pastor Peterson preached this awesome sermon about waiting on the Lord. And this is exactly what Simeon had been doing. He was living an Advent life. And now the wait was over. It was made known to him on that certain day in the temple and the Holy Spirit gave him a special revelation that this specific little child, Jesus, was the one. Everything that he had been waiting for, it was going to be fulfilled in that child. Now, did, did Simeon, did he stop and examine Mary and Joseph and baby? Did he really think hard about it? Did he scoff at this humble little peasant child? Could he tell by the outward appearances? Could he prove to himself that this child was his savior? Was it sensible for him to think, according to human reasoning, that that little baby was the one? Of course not. But Simeon believed it. He held to it. He was willing to go with what God had revealed to him. And we see that there's evidence of this. As Simeon then sang out the beautiful words that you and I still sing, especially on Communion Sundays. The nunc dimittis. 
Simeon sings out, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, you fulfilled what you said you would do, Lord. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon does the same thing that the shepherds did, that Mary and Joseph do, that those wise men are going to do. We'll hear about that in a couple weeks. They listen to God, not in doubt, not scoffing, not offended by God's plan. They all stood in amazement and wonderment of God. They were praising, they were worshiping God for what he had chosen to do. And for the fact that he revealed it to them. And dear friends, God has revealed that same thing to you and to me. He has revealed Jesus to us. Yes, this humble one, this little one. So many other people out there, they scoff at him. They might reject him. They might be offended by him. And yet, what do we find in this lowly little Christ child? What do we find and what do we receive by his holy, perfect life? What do we find and what do we receive by his crucifixion, his brutal suffering and death? What do we find in his rising from the dead on the third day? We find everything that is needed for our own rising. We find in Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, as Paul writes. We find a message, a message about how he lived for us, earning righteousness for us how he paid for our sins upon the cross, how he's risen from the dead to assure us that we're going to rise. That simple message is a message that saves all who simply believe it. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, Paul writes, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In Christ, we find God's plan for our salvation. We find revealed to us God's plan for winning us our forgiveness. We find God's plan of opening heaven to you and to me. And because we have this Christ child, we now also have the ability to do as as Simeon does, depart in peace. And that doesn't mean that we just get to go out these doors today into our, our daily lives enjoying peace in spite of the storms that are raging around us. That's true. What a wonderful benefit that is. But we have a greater blessing. Simeon here, he's really proclaiming, I can have peace as I face death itself. For pastors, this is a, a favorite section that we get to share with people as we are ministering to them as they are nearing death. We get to proclaim to those who hold to what God has revealed to them. We get to say to them, now you can depart in peace. You get to go in peace and enjoy just as Simeon did because you too have seen your salvation. God has opened your eyes to his plan. And you do not reject this. You cling to it. You rejoice in it. You take comfort in it. Like Simeon, you you have found Christ even though he's come to you in this humble, unassuming way, and yet you're not offended by it, he raises you up, and he will raise you up to life everlasting. Now for us, 
we don't get to take this small child, this baby in our arms as Simeon once did. But we get to take this Christ child into our ears through the hearing of God's word. We get to hear this simple message. Jesus loves me. This I know. God is one salvation for us through Christ. What an awesome message that is. We take Christ and we have his righteousness poured over us in the name of the triune God when something as simple as water is poured upon our heads in the name of the, of the Trinity in holy baptism. We get to take Christ now and we put him upon our own lips and into our mouth and we receive with his own body and blood the forgiveness of sins. As we come to his altar and we receive these, this, this humble appearing package of, of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. And yes, by outward appearances, the outward package, it comes across as something so lowly and humble. And yet in these means of grace, we find the power of God for our salvation. Do not be offended by these things. Jesus is coming to you and to me still here today. He's still active right here among us. He's at work for us here and now. He is at work for you and for your rising. Don't take offense at how he comes to you. Instead, join Simeon in seeing in this humble package, in seeing in this humble little one, our Lord Jesus, see in him our salvation. All glory be to him. Amen.